Blog Talk Radio. to be joined by Harry Beckwith, the author of Selling the Invisible. We're having a hard time tracking him down at this time, so hopefully he'll be joining us here in a few moments. Again, my name is Stuart Crawford, Crawford, and welcome to Canadian Business Radio here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast, webcast, here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and we talk about everything that uh, can benefit a Canadian business owner, small businesses, uh, the entrepreneur who's just looking at starting up their own business and uh, offering some savvy business advice uh, to those uh, who are in need. And um, we are here every uh, every couple of weeks here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. I'd like to thank the fine folks there at Blog Talk Radio for uh, having the service online. You can go and create your own free account today at blogtalkradio.com and uh, start podcasting, webcasting right away. Anyway, I'd like to um, introduce our guest today, Mr. Harry Beckwith. I met Harry a few years ago, we were speaking at a conference I was attending and gave away a few copies of his book, Selling the Invisible, which we're going to focus on today. And Harry's uh, book, Selling the Invisible, was named one of the 10 best business management books of all time. So uh, what a great feat. Harry, how are you today, and uh, how are things uh, going in your neck of the woods? Uh, cold. I, uh, <laughs> it's a long story, but <laughs> I'm actually standing outside as I talk to you. Um, but uh, it's about 30 degrees in Minneapolis and plenty of snow, but none falling. And uh, but life in every other respect is quite good. Hope yours too. Excellent. Yeah, really well. We you know we've been kind of blessed here in uh, in Western Canada. We had a pretty cold uh, November, December, but it's warmed up in January. Been really nice, uh, above 32 degrees for the last couple of weeks, which is really abnormal for for us out here. So here, well, come uh, on. a couple. Of, Sorry, it's been a couple years since we met. Yeah, it's been a couple years since we met uh, in Orlando at the ConnectWise conference, and I wanted to touch mm-hmm. base. What's new in your in your uh, in your life in the last couple of years? What what have you been up to? Well, the this, the economy started to turn around. I, I started to see a turnaround in October, but there was certainly a, the recession affected everybody. I speak, and that affected speaking, and I consult, and that affected consulting. But uh, October was one of our busiest months ever, and since then, business has been. Uh, uh, quite good. I think that uh, Americans generally are starting to feel a little bit more secure than they felt some time ago. We still have fairly high unemployment, but then I think that we're going to have um, higher unemployment as we go through this transition anyway. I think our economy really is shifting to more of a free agent kind of economy that people have talked about, and I think that that will kind of skew the unemployment numbers for, for some time. And uh, in my uh, professional life of most significance, I'm, I've just completed on December 1st at 6.37 p.m., at least the manuscript for my next book, which will be out in October. Can't reveal the title of it yet because uh, we've had bad luck in revealing titles early and having had them stolen three in a row. But this book is, uh, focuses very much on consumer behavior and why Americans particularly make the choices that they 
they do and buy the products that they buy. I can't say that the model doesn't necessarily apply to Canadians, but there is a distinctive American character that does have some influence over uh, both the, the, the products and services we choose, but also the advertising and marketing messages that are, that are effective with us. Yeah, and that's 100% uh, correct there, Harry. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the unemployment, and I think, I believe, if anything, uh, what happens down uh, below the 49th eventually will spill over uh, to the Canadian economy. So it's good to hear some positive news coming from down south, and uh, that'll have a, a definitely effect up here as a lot of our products and services are shipped uh, across the border in both directions. Absolutely, yep. So let's talk about, uh, you know, the... One of the books I, I know I just finished reading, and you uh, signed a number of copies uh, a few years ago in Orlando, uh, was the uh, Selling the Invisible book. Now, it was, a, you know, in my opinion, one, probably one of the best business books that I had a chance to read in the last uh, couple of years. As a, as a company myself providing services, you know, it's hard to get your hands around a tangible product. It's not like we're selling cars yeah. or or yeah. stereo systems or whatever. You know what? You know, you mentioned the free agent economy a few minutes ago. Are free agency and services kind of tied together? Well, free agents are services. Once you're out there as a free agent selling yourself as a, 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 as a, a potential employer, short-term or long-term, whether it's as a consultant or, or over a longer period of time, what you're really selling is a service. You're selling your ability to perform something at a future date. And anytime you're selling a promise, something that people can't evaluate, uh, but can only evaluate as a promise of an individual of some services to be delivered at some future date, you're in the business of selling the invisible. So all the lessons of that book apply to people as they try to market themselves. And, and Harry, what do you see in some of the challenges that um, you know consultants or service-based organizations are having with marketing today? Well, I think the challenges uh, you see in our country particularly is, and maybe less so in Canada, maybe you're somewhat more respectful of the language, but you know we're not teaching the language perhaps as well as we used to. And the basic tool that you're using to, to market yourself is language. And, um, and you need to learn, you need to know how or learn how to speak clearly and use evidence precisely and communicate in all the ways that uh, get people to respond. And it's, uh, it's not being taught as well anymore, or perhaps we're just much more of a visual economy and based on images and television. And so, um, and so the word seems to be declining, but the word is the ultimate weapon in, in services and what I constantly consult clients is uh, use better words and fewer words, but um, it's hard for people to do. Do you think email and you know, all this text messaging stuff has something to do with that as well? Well, it's easy to blame that, but I feel like I'm writing better and more clearly than I ever have, and I text and, and email a lot. But this generation coming up, yeah, their, their primary mode of communication is that, and I think it's, it's bound to have um, a leveling and uh, detrimental effect on it and and so but that that creates opportunities for people that do do it some of your people listening are consultants or marketing consultants and I suspect to uh, help people to communicate and tell their stories better and more clearly and so the opportunity for those people who do have that skill well uh, those opportunities should be great yeah and what you know in the book um, Harry you mentioned um, you know some of the myths around marketing um, you know some of the things that hit my memory of uh, and something I used to do all the time until recently was, uh, you know, having my best clients uh, come together like in a focus group idea and 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 give me feedback on my on my business. And in the book, you mentioned that's probably not a good practice. Why would that? Uh, why why is that, Harry? 
Well, I think groups just generally communicate differently as groups than they communicate as individuals. And uh, I, I, I always think that the best question to ask is because people, I've, I've learned this from experience, the best question you can ask somebody is, what are the three things I could do better? And people will, uh, people will tend to answer that because it's not put forth as a criticism. It's just put forth as a way of soliciting an improvement. And they're much more apt to do that. If, if on the other hand, you say, what am I doing wrong? People say, oh, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Uh, and the, and uh, so it's a question of candor. But focus groups are just inherently problematical. They tend to get uh, taken over by one fairly dominant voice. And then if that person has an unusually dominant personality, uh, and the others don't. They'll just sort of nod their head in agreement when, in fact, they disagree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, in, uh, in personal experience, I actually have um, have seen that uh, in uh, in a number of uh, groups that I've been to. Yeah, they have the one dominant person is takes over the whole conversation. Uh, yeah, just but, you know, I mean, as, as I say, every business should have no. Every business should have that in their arsenal. So they say, what are the three things that we could do better? And people will ask that question in part because they, uh, when you ask somebody a question like that, they want to appear astute. And so they actually want to come up with an answer because you flattered them by, by your Im implicit recognition that they would have uh, three suggestions for you. Is that almost like ask, asking the question, you know, um, you know rank, please rank us one out of ten. If we didn't score a ten, what can we do to make your experience a ten? Well, that, yeah, that's, I haven't done that, but I, I, uh, I think that that's Never thought of that, but that sounds like a good alternative. It's kind of in the same year. I always, I always like the one there. For, you know, am I hitting a home run with you? If, if not, what can I do to hit a home run? Either, or even when we're looking yeah. at replacing other service providers, why aren't they not hitting a home run? What could they do to hit a home run with you? I think the most important thing is, uh, or a, a, an important thing, because there are all sorts of important things. I think there's just an enormous human tendency to overestimate ourselves and think we're doing better than we, we are. The average business, if you I saw the statistic recently. Uh, they asked, they asked uh, businesses, what uh, businesses, uh, how many of you are providing superior service? And 80% said they were providing superior service, not just above average, but superior. When they asked uh, companies, when they asked individuals, what percentage of the companies you work with are providing superior service? They answered 5%. So there's a huge gap between what people are perceiving and uh, and what the Companies uh, how the companies see themselves, and and this, so this tendency to overestimate ourselves drastically is a real impediment. I think you've really got to be very, as a general proposition, I think we'd all agree you have to be humble in this life to get better, and so businesses need to be humble too and assume that they're doing several things uh, that if they're not doing them wrong, they could be doing them a whole lot better. Well, it's like uh, my good friend Harv Ecker says, and I'm sure you you've heard Harv in the past. You know, everything can be improved upon. Well, exactly. I actually experienced that writing my book, and they said, you know, when do you hope to be done? And I said, well, the end of any book is arbitrary. It's dictated by the fact that you have to stop. Uh, but uh, there's, always a, there's always a better verb, there's a better noun, there's a better way of formatting it, there's a better title, there's a better everything. But ultimately, just sooner or later, you just got to quit. <laughs> and, it's and, true and in life. Yeah, also in the book here, you talk about emotions quite a bit, and uh, you know, uh, and how uh, you know some of the critical emotions influence our prospects, and how we as business owners can deal with that. You know, you you know, I always uh, think back to a client, and they could ha they could be having a bad or appear to have a bad day, and uh, my sales pre presentation or consulting time goes uh, not as well as I planned. 
when I automatically, I have done this, and I'm sure my peers have done it, they automatically assume that there was something wrong with what I had done when it could be something, and a a factor externally from our meeting that could be influencing this person, like maybe a sick kid at home or they're late on a credit card payment. Uh, How do we deal with emotions when we're we're dealing with uh, those people looking for our services? Well, I think that's all we're dealing with in a way. I've actually, in the course of this book, I, uh, I, I talk about how, you know, Plato talked about how the human mind was a charioteer uh, holding a rein to two horses. And charioteer represents reason, and the horses are our um, irrational impulses. And, uh, and um, I, I've come to the conclusion that we're primarily really emotional beings and that we really just summons our, our intellect to come in and justify the decisions that our feelings have already made for us. And, uh, and so when you say, how do we deal with emotions, you're, you're dealing with them constantly. I think it's, it's even an appreciation when you're making a sales presentation that you're appealing only to their reason and their intellect. You're really not appealing to the whole person at all. Ultimately, I think in services, I, I'm, I'm convinced in services, that, that we simply buy people that we like as as uh, as simple and clicheish as that may sound, uh, and we like them because we think that we can trust them, and uh, we want to trust them in part because we know that no service, as you've said, nothing is perfect, and nothing can be perfect. But our comfort in dealing with the with a person that we trust is that they'll fix it, and we don't have that same confidence with someone about whom we don't have that feeling. Uh, so it's all a, by way of saying the what's that the wonderful thing I've learned in business is better a person you try to become, the better your work gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, like and, and in the, yeah, go ahead, Terry, sorry. Oh, it's just that, you know, it's just, I'm just reflecting on the fact that we, we grow up and we, we acquire all these technical skills, and in our educational system particularly, and I suspect in Canada's too, it can kind of create the illusion uh, with you that if you just master something technically or come close to mastering something technically, that everything will fall your way. And, and yet you go out in the real world and you see people who are very competent and, and have very good technical skills and don't achieve success in life, and you wonder why, and it's because they don't have this other aspect of emotional intelligence and uh, that uh, just figures so prominently. And as I say, the longer I work, the more important I, I realize it is. Well, that brings me back to another great point about the difference between being great and being good. I was speaking with a bunch of realtors this week about, uh, you know, uh, doing some social media talks to them, and one of the reasons why a lot of us don't jump into that because we're waiting for our blogs or our websites to be absolutely perfect when perhaps maybe good enough is good enough. And and do you see that as a – that's the way the world's going as we're living in a good enough uh, market? (laughs) Well, I think – I, I, I have no faith in perfection. I've never seen it in anything. I, we're li- I'm living in a country that at one time thought that perhaps we'd finally created the perfect golfer in Tiger Woods, and we've cern- recently learned otherwise about that. I, um, it, it's a difficult question to ask because I see so... Uh, yeah, I'm coming off a day where yesterday a, a company sent to me their, their first run-through on their website and asked for my opinion about it, and I, I didn't really know where to begin. It was uh, miles short of being anywhere near pretty good. I think the pursuit of perfection can get a lot of people to fail to act, and I think you've always got to keep that in check. And uh, 
but I think it was a reminder here that uh, you, you need to have uh, standards and people to help enforce them, as vague as that may sound, I'm afraid. And uh, I'm, my, again, I might be answering your question differently if I had not had this experience yesterday with something that was so short of, of really pretty good that I didn't know where to begin. Well, that's, I mean, you, you nailed it, right? I mean, pretty, you know, there, there is excellent, you know, good, and then, you know, downright <laughs> awful, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think that the, 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 it's, it's unrealistic to pursue perfection because you don't really achieve it, and, and, per, and perfectionists really ultimately in this world find themselves in all kinds of, of trouble. But what you want to strive for constantly for is, is a, a kind of a standard of professional excellence. You know, Tiger, having said Tiger Woods, but he's, he's a good source on this because someone said, you know, if, are you striving perfection? He says, no, perfection, perfection is unattainable. What I'm really striving for is professional excellence. So to continue to strive for that and then to ask your clients, you know, what would make us professionally excellent? Let's assume that we're three things short. What are the three things that we need to do to be excellent? And do those things and do those and then ask the question again three months from now and six months from now and just keep asking it. Well, let's get back to uh, another one of the key learnings from filling the invisible, Harry, was um, you know serve our clients as they want to be served, not as we what we think they want to be served like. Uh, no, and it's like the platinum rule: treat people as they want to be treated. Yeah, well, I, although it's interesting you bring that up because I heard this fellow speak on the platinum rule, and I found the rule very confusing because he spent the first thirty minutes of his presentation saying um, treat everyone the way they want to be treated, as opposed to the golden rule, and then he spent the second thirty minutes telling them to treat them the way you treat your best clients. So in other words, he was saying treat them all differently, and then he's saying, saying treat them all the same. And I ended up just kind of scratching my head and thinking, well, just treat them well. The um, Yeah, and it's, it's uh, what, what you do discover in this work is there's this skill called uh, empathy and called listening where you're able to develop a relationship with a client in such a way that you really find out who they are and what they really do want. And that's, not, and that's a very difficult thing to achieve in a, in a huge organization. Uh, but at the, but um, as much as possible, you want to get your people in a position where you have the kind of people with the skills, and especially the skill of listening and empathy, where the client really will reveal what they want and need. And that's an, that's an unusual situation. I think that people, in fact, could be very good at uh, behaving in a way and performing in a way that they want the client to act if they knew what that was, but they never figure that out. And uh, so kind of asking, you know, asking them, right? Well, it's asking, but it's also kind of developing the kind of relationship where they really feel comfortable in telling. Uh, it's a it's a fairly intimate relationship because I've had a chance to study this over the last few years and realize the clients I have for which for whom we've done. Uh, especially good work, and I realize the clients for whom we do especially good work is the clients for whom we have especially good relationships. And it's not just the quality of the relationships good, but it's the quality of the work itself, and it's because we find out more about them and we find out what they really uh, value. And there's a, you know, I'd step back and study, well, what are the elements of that relationship? But it's, um, it's very much like any other successful relationship. It is a whole lot like being in love. <laughs> It's just mm -hmm. a hard thing for it's just a hard thing for people to think about in their day to day lives and thinking especially if 
the client is a male and you're a male, and but it's it's uh, love. And when I look at my best clients, my best clients I have relationships with that are very much like the relationship I have with the the woman in my life. It's um, I can't. Well, kind of gets down to what I an old an old trick I learned uh, early in my marriage, um, Harry was. You know, a happy wife equals a happy life. <laughs> so I guess we could say the same thing for our clients. A happy client is a long time a long time client. Well, yeah, but there's there's uh, there's just this quality of uh, communication that you achieve with it that's uh, exhilarating, really. Yeah, but it gets well, but it gets back but it but it gets back to what I said too. Is um, it gets back, well, that gets back to one of my key issues I have with uh, you know small business owners and you know painting paint with a wide brush that. And when it comes to communication, we're awfully very, and most of us are very poor at it. And it can be something as simple as, you know, follow up a day after a project's completed or a couple days after. And that can, you know, I learned from uh, a good mentor of mine that there's no such thing as over communication. No, no, not at all. One of the things, you know, one of the basic things I write about in my book is just uh, how many thank you notes did you send this year and next year send twice as many? You know, carrying them around in your briefcase, carrying them around in your purse, carrying them around in your coat, and you're stopped at a stoplight or sitting at a bookstore someday or waiting for a plane in an airport. Uh, there's there's always somebody to be to be grateful for and to express it, and we don't hear a lot of it. We don't get a lot of written messages anymore. We get email messages, but those are different. But a, a handwritten thank you note is a gift these days. Yeah, and it takes you about a 54 or 37 cent stamp, depending on where you live, to uh, to post that. And they, you know, I I love getting uh, those type of cards in the mail here. It, it's it says a lot for the relationship. The one last thing I want to kind of touch on before our time expires today is the the importance of um, marketing. You know how it, you know across the whole organization, from you know the VP of marketing right down to you know so how the receptionist answers the telephone. Can we touch on that? You know how important that consistent yeah. experience is. Well, I, you probably heard me tell the story in Orlando. I've got several great receptionist stories. The the one I uh, uh, one in which the the receptionist was really the difference in making a thirteen million dollar sale for a company. People uh, have really very limited contacts with the company. If you think about it, they they look at their website. They uh, call the phone and they hear from the receptionist. Perhaps they go into the office and go through the lobby. But our points of contact are really very limited. And the, and the contacts that we have with those are very limited. And in, in almost without exception, the primary source of contact we have is the person who answers the phone. And we're very sensitive as human beings to all the, the indicators of, of who we're dealing with. And someone who has a fairly surly receptionist or unresponsive one or an unprofessional one, we draw all kinds of conclusions from that immediately because we don't have a lot of data to go on and we want to make the best decisions we can. We think, well, didn't seem that friendly, didn't seem that professional. This other one seemed a little friendly, a little more professional. We choose that. And the people that are the victims of those decisions, the beneficiaries, never know that it was just a simple phone call that made all the difference. But I've got you know three cases in my quiver and just my years of of cases where the the difference was literally tens of millions of dollars, and it was all the receptionists. And um, and so, in fact, one of the at the least expensive least expensive piece of advice I've gotten, but over a course of a year, it's not enormously expensive. I've often said the fastest way to improve your services, and I said, well, as you're who's ever answering your phone, your receptionist, you learn that she's moving, 
have the people in your company identify the, the three best receptionists they've worked with in the last year and go out and offer that person $2,000 more than he or she is making right now, uh, and that person will be worth it to you in about uh, two months. So it's probably safe to assume, Harry, that probably the best salesperson in the organization is the person who answers the phone the first time a prospect or a suspect calls into the office. She makes more sales calls every day than, than your, all your salespeople combined. She is she's the voice of, or he, the voice of the company. And like I say, people really are looking at little tiny pieces of evidence when they look at services to decide who's good or who's bad. And... Um, and even if they, they're not aware that they're doing it, they're doing it. Subconsciously, it's stuck. They associate that name, and I called so-and-so, and there's just something about that I didn't like or something that I did. They don't even know what it was. In the end, it was the person answering the phone. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of eye-opening. Harry, we've got a, a couple minutes left. You know, if we had to recap and, or even touch on something we haven't, uh, haven't shared yet, what's, what would be one key lesson that you can share with our listeners today uh, that you know, if they had to, you know, if they could do this tomorrow, it would make a big difference in their business. You know, I, I've really come to the conclusion that it's 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 everything. But <laughs> I really this almost sounds like a commercial. I think somebody the best thing I've ever done is reading my book because I find that I'm not always doing all the things that are in there. And I don't think that I think it's like it's like in golf. It's not just one thing. It's a succession of tiny things that add up, and it's the, the humility to think that you're not doing it as well as you could, and the, and the persistence and determination to continue to, drive, to do better that'll drive the business forward. But if I was looked at one uh, practical thing, or, or a more specific concrete thing, um, I, I think that all people need to be aware of the power of brands. I'm a... Uh, in this world in which more and more people are communicating, more and more services are communicating, more and more individuals are communicating for jobs, every product, every service, and every person really does have a brand, as cliche as that advice has started to sound. And what is yours, and, and what does it stand for, and is it very clear, do you have a very clear message that you're delivering about what it is about your, you, your product, or your service that can make at least a small improvement in the life of the person that you're approaching. And to really view it as a brand and to study brands and to read some of the better books about them, uh, including mine, I think, because I'm a huge advocate of these, to help you understand why brands have such influence and why yours has such influence and how you might create yours for yourself, your product, or your service. Great, Harry. And with that, we'll... Um I'll let you get back inside to the warm weather. Thanks, thanks, thanks for joining my, us today. My, my fingers are bright red right now, so thank you. Best thanks of luck to everybody out there. Send us. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for joining us today on uh, Canadian Business Radio. That was Harry Beckwith, the author of a number of books, um, uh, some of which are uh, The Invisible Touch, clients, What Clients Love, and Selling the Invisible. And for more information, you can visit Harry's website at beckwithpartners.com. And from there, you can um, you know, learn more about his books. Um, my name is Stuart Crawford, and you've been on Canadian Business Radio uh, here on Blog Talk Radio Network. Again, once again, thanks to uh, Harry for his time. Thanks to you, our listeners, for uh, tuning in and downloading this uh, program on your iPod or uh, whatever device you listen to. We are here uh, regularly, most most Fridays, but we we say bi-weekly just to be sure we can get uh, get a show in. 
My name is Stuart Crawford. We're going to sign off for Canadian Business Radio for this week. Have yourself a great uh, week, and we'll talk to you very soon.